Good morning, Grace Baptist Church, and welcome to Easter Sunday morning, Resurrection Sunday. So glad to see everyone here today. Today, our scripture reading is going to be coming from the book of Luke 24, verses 1 to 12. Uh, If you want to open up your Bibles there, join with us. If you want to use the Pew Bible, please feel free to do that, and that is page 884. That's 884 in the Pew Bible there, as we will be continuing our Our sermon series on prophet, priest, and king today, we're looking at the passage out of Luke. Uh, So follow along with me as I read Luke 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, Two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of the sinful men and be crucified on the third day and rise again. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb... They told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told them these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them as idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking inside, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the Word of God. Good morning. It is great to see everyone here on this beautiful Sunday morning. I know for many of you, this is your first time at Grace. I want to welcome you. Maybe this is your first time back at church in a while. Uh, We are so glad you're here today. We care about you And we are delighted that you are with us today. If you are visiting, can I just invite you back Uh, next week? Our family lives, our church family lives by a number of convictions. And one of them is this, that we will welcome you just the way you are, but we will love you enough not to leave you that way. We believe that God wants you to be all that he has created you to be. and, And we are convinced that that happens best in a community of faith just like this. We are in a series, last Sunday, Good Friday, and today, a short series on the offices of Jesus. These are three offices that God has in the Bible, in the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king. And usually there were individuals who had one of these offices. Nobody had all three of these offices. But Jesus comes along, and and he's not just a good person. He's not even just a wise teacher. That Jesus claims to be a prophet, the very one who speaks the words of God. And then he claims and takes on the office of priest, the one who would offer himself as a sacrifice on our behalf. He's the sacrifice. He's the altar. He's the priest. And then he claims to be king, the one who reigns over the universe and over our lives with all authority. Today I want us to look at What makes Jesus the king and why that matters for your life? Jesus, our resurrected king. There is something about royalty that fascinates us, isn't there? 
We enjoy hearing news, keeping up with those who are royals. In fact, the Queen of England recently died after a reign of over 70 years, the longest reign in UK history, and her funeral was watched, according to some estimates, by nearly 4 billion people globally. That's half the world. Why? Why, is, why did that many people want to tune in? Why was this event so important? There is something about royalty that draws us to them. Right? For some of you, Princess Diana, and now Prince, Prince Harry, or I don't even know if he's a prince anymore, or is he just a spare? Who knows? There is, and now there's a new king in England, right? We have love-hate relationships with kings, don't we? For thousands of years, some of you know this, if you've read good stories, if you've watched any great movies, some of you know that for thousands of years, the same storyline, the legends of the world have centered on a great king who rules with, with wisdom and justice and, and compassion. And when that king was ruling, everything flourished in life. Businesses flourished and relationships flourished and the, and the arts were flourishing and there was peace, shalom in the land. But as most legends go, something tragically happens and takes the king away and darkness covers the land and everything has gone wrong. But legends always anticipate the return of this great king, don't they? And when this king returns, he will rescue the people from evil and from chaos and he will restore all that was lost. These are the stories that have been told throughout human history. Stories like my favorite cartoon movie, Robin Hood. Anybody know that movie? I just made my kids watch it last night. <laughs> Make. You know, King Richard's this great king, and he goes off, and now uh, Prince John is ruling, and he's a terrible king or ruler, and, and everything in the kingdom is suffering under his harsh rule, and needs a Robin Hood to come and, and make things right, and then the king will come back. Or think of Lord of the Rings. The entire storyline, the premise of the entire storyline is the return of the king. A king who will put an end to evil. Even in a country like ours that doesn't have a king or any royals, we end up creating them, don't we? We, we look to billionaires. What does Warren Buffett say about this? I'm going to do whatever he says. We look to movie stars. We call athletes kings. I won't name them, but there are some who call themselves king. There are also some singers who we call king. We adore them. We look up to them. We care about what they think, what they wear, what they say. Why is it that so many of us uh, give ourselves over to the sway of dynamic and enthusiastic leaders? Why is there this longing for a king when really earthly kings, if we're honest, have been selfish and sinful? Like the, the record of human kings is terrible. And yet we're drawn to them. Here's why. The reason we adore kings and create them is because there's this deep longing in the human heart, a longing for a great king, a longing for a leader who can rule with both power and wisdom, with both glory and humility. And not only that, deep down, we know we are wired to submit to that kind of king. And here's what I want you to know today. There is a king behind all the legends. A king behind all the kings. He is the true king. 
And the Bible says that if you reject the true king, you will find someone or something else to adore and follow because you have to. You will seek something or someone to give your life meaning, significance, to make your life better. But the truth is, any other king will ultimately oppress you and crush you. But there is a true king who has come and will come again to make all things right. And the message of Christianity and the message of Easter is, Jesus is that king. That he is the king of kings. If you read Luke's gospel, this is, Luke is one of the four eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. And Luke, in the very beginning, who's a, he's a medical doctor, and he's writing this. In the very beginning, he says that Gabriel, an, an angel, announces to Mary that, that she will bear a son, and he will be a king who, quote, will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Right off the bat, we find this is no ordinary child, it's a king. And then Jesus grows up and his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and they're waving the palm branches. And what do they say? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. When the religious leaders bring Jesus before Pilate and Pilate is struggling with what to do with him and Pilate finally flat out asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And in Luke 23, 3, Jesus answered, you have said so. In other words, it's true. All throughout Luke's gospel, Jesus is declared as the king. And, but then what happens to the king? They nail him to a cross. Wrongfully. Unjustly. The greatest evil in all of history. And then they place a sign upon him as he is enduring the cross. And the sign says what? King of the Jews. On Good Friday, Jesus died. The king is dead. And so are the hopes and dreams of all of his followers. And the questions begin to circulate. Was he really the king? Because if he was the king we'd all been hoping for, why couldn't he even prevent his own death? And now we pick up the story in Luke chapter 24, and we see that he's not just a king who has died, but he is the resurrected king. And I want to show you why this matters. And three lessons we draw from this text. Lesson number one, I want you to believe the miracle of the resurrected king. Luke is giving us an account of what happened when these women go to Jesus' tomb to give him a proper burial. Notice they prepare the spices in verse 1. They're going to do exactly what, what the law had told them to do, instructed them to do, to prepare his body for a proper burial. And they come to the tomb, and what do they expect? They expect to see the dead body of Jesus, don't they? They didn't expect the resurrection. That's why they were stunned to find it empty. They're stunned that the stone is rolled away, which tells us that these women understood Jesus to be like the founder of every other religion because we know that the founder of every major religion in the world is dead. So if you want to seek Muhammad or if you want to seek Buddha or if you want to seek Confucius or if you want to seek Moses, all these leaders of, of various religions, you have to either read their writings and, and live by their teachings and maybe even visit their tomb. But here's what you need to understand. If you treat Jesus like he was every other religious leader, even a brilliant and inspirational teacher, if you treat him like that, you'll always miss him. You'll never find Jesus. That's why the angels asked, asked them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is risen, they proclaim. 
Can I ask you this morning, are you seeking the living among the dead? Are you making the same mistake these women, these disciples make by denying the miracle of the resurrection? Some of you here might, would, would say this, I know, because I've talked to people in the, in the community for years, and I know people say, look, I believe Jesus' teachings are inspirational, they're beautiful, I try to live by the golden rule, but I can't believe this primitive idea that he actually rose from the dead. I mean, come on. People back then were simple-minded, but I'm more educated. I'm a modern person. I got degrees all on my wall, too. I could never believe in the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus. Now, here's the irony of that. Can I just share? There's an irony here. Luke, a medical doctor, by the way, is telling this account to an audience that is just as skeptical about the resurrection as we are. Did you know that? It has always been incredibly difficult to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Today, we tend to be skeptical because we, 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 we doubt things at all because of our scientific objections. If we're honest, we don't believe in miracles, period. But back then, their skepticism was rooted in the belief that the physical world was evil. So to say that Jesus rose bodily, came back into a physical body, would have been utterly ridiculous. Why would the, the, the spirit of the greatest person ever come back into the evil body? And they struggled to believe it. The idea that we're more educated and civilized and that's why we can't accept the resurrection is not true at all. People back then had as much trouble believing it in the plausibility of it. Even Peter, right, the greatest disciple, at the very end, verse 12, he walks away and it says he's marveling. That's not faith yet. He still doesn't get it. He still struggles to believe. And so if you are struggling to believe in the miracle of the resurrection, Luke, Dr. Luke offers you very specific pieces of evidence. Verse 10, he names the people who were there. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of Jesus. Joanna is the wife of the head administrator of Herod. Mary Magdalene, a former prostitute. Mary the mother of James. Luke is including their names, and he's saying, look, anyone who wants to verify this account, it was written just a few decades after the death of Jesus and resurrection. He's writing this, and he's saying, look, anyone who wants to, to verify this, go talk to these women. I'm telling you exactly who was there. I'm not making it up. They're alive, and they'll corroborate my evidence. This is not how legends are written. This is not how legends are written. This is an eyewitness, an account by the way, if Luke and the other gospel writers were making up a story, as some people say, right? Bart Ehrman, oh, the, the early church was trying to launch a brand new religion. Wouldn't they have made it more believable? I mean, women in ancient societies were marginalized, wrongfully so. Their testimony was dismissed in court. No way, we don't believe women. I mean, even the other guy, even the disciples, sadly, when the women go, they think it's what? An idle tale. Come on. If Luke and the early Christians were making this story up and they wanted to launch a new religion, they would have never written to the story, women were the first witnesses to the empty tomb. They would have said, and the most high and mighty men have found the empty tomb, and that's why you can believe them. But instead, they put women in. Why? There's only one explanation as to why this makes sense. It's because Luke is simply reporting facts. It actually happened this way. Not only that, the most compelling evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is what we have in this text, and that is an empty tomb. If the dead body of Jesus were still alive, 
the authorities would simply just produce the body and squelch all the rumors. It was as simple as that. But no body was ever produced. Why? Because there's no body to produce. The only explanation is that Jesus rose from the dead. Look, the evidence for the resurrection is overwhelming and compelling, but why isn't it universally accepted? German philosopher Wolfhard Pannenberg gives us a clue. He says this, quote, The evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it's a very unusual event, meaning seems impossible. And second, if you believe it happened, you would have to change the way you live. He says, first, it's an unusual event. In other words, it involved a miracle. Look, it was supposed to be impossible for a 16 seed to beat a number one seed in March Madness. All the experts would say, impossible. Well, is it? It is until it isn't. If you refuse to consider a supernatural explanation, no matter how compelling the evidence, can I just tell you, that's the definition of closed-mindedness. Others reject it because it would change the way they live. If Jesus rose from the dead, that means everything he claimed to be is true, and he's Lord over our lives, which means he's Lord over your money, he's Lord over your sexuality, he's Lord over your politics, you don't get to choose those things, he tells you, here's how you're called to live, and many simply don't want that. Aldous Huxley, he's the man who coined the term agnostic. He birthed the agnostic movement. He actually said this. This is a genius. I mean, this guy was brilliant. And he said, quote, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. The philosophy of meaninglessness was an instrument of liberation. And a lot of people are like, amen, liberation. And he says, quote, and the liberation we sought was the liberation from Christian morality. At least he's honest. Let me ask you, have you considered the evidence on its own terms? I know you still have questions. I still do. I know you wonder, why is the world so messed up? Why is my life so hard? Why are there so many religions? I know I have those questions too. I want to challenge you today to be open-minded enough to consider the evidence on its own terms. One pastor defined faith as this. Faith occurs when the unexplainable confronts the undeniable. When the unexplainable confronts the undeniable, faith is not having all your questions answered. It's wrestling with the unexplainable in light of the undeniable evidence of the resurrection. You see, the resurrection is central to the gospel. It's central to the good news, and the disciples all missed it. They missed the miracle. And I'm encouraging you to believe it as they would eventually too when they saw the risen Jesus. Believe the miracle. But here's the the second thing. They missed the meaning of the resurrection. And I think part of the lesson here is we need to understand the meaning of the resurrected king. Notice in verse 7, the angels explained to the women what Jesus had to do. He says, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. The word must there. It's not just like a, yeah, he kind of had to do that. It's, it, it, it means divine necessity. It, it literally has, a, it, there's theological meaning in this word. It means there's no other way. Jesus had to die They're saying, Jesus had to rise again. That's what makes him the king. Why did Jesus have to die? Why do they put it in such strong terms? Here's why. Big picture. 
big story of the Bible. Ever since Adam and Eve, ever since the first parents of ours lived, every human being has rejected God as king, and in some way or another, we've sought to be our own king and queens. Yes, we love the legends of kings and queens. We love the legends of royalty. But in real life, we don't dare want a king to rule over us. I mean, we're Americans, for goodness sake. We don't want someone telling us what to do and how to live. And so every one of us, consciously or subconsciously, rejects God as our king. And get this, in God's eyes, that's considered cosmic treason. The Bible says the punishment for our rejection of him is death. And that means eternal separation from God in hell. You say, Mark, that sounds drastic. It is, and it does sound that way. But if it sounds too drastic, it's because you and I cannot begin to fathom the infinite holiness of God compared to the, in, the depth of our sin against that holy God. If, if we struggle to believe why the consequences are so great, let me just offer this, that, that even the way we live our lives in our society are based on this principle, that the greater the authority, the greater the punishment. If I go to the grocery store like I did when I was seven years old and I try to steal a pack of gum, there's a certain consequence for that. For me, it was my dad saw it and he made me return it. It was shame and guilt and all that. But you know, the, the store could do something to me. But if I, look, but if I steal secrets from the U.S. government and sell it to the Russian government, you better believe there's a lot more consequences, right? And no one would go, oh, that's not fair. Just tell his dad. <laughs> no, you would be like, that guy is going to jail or worse. Why? Why do you intuitively know that? Because the greater the authority, the greater the punishment. Look, we have sinned against the greatest authority in the universe. The punishment will be the greatest. And the only way for God to bring us back into relationship with himself, the only way for him to restore that chasm that has been caused by our sin is for him to take the punishment because it would utterly destroy us. He has to die our death. He has to bear our guilt. He has to take our shame. And that's what Jesus came to do. He lived the perfect life. He had the perfect record. He, he obeyed God's law perfectly. He never disobeyed, never thought something wrong against a, a friend or, or a brother or anybody else. No. And then he went to the cross and God exchanged his perfect life for my sinful life and yours. God took his perfect record and exchanged it for your messed up record. That's what it means why he took our sin. You cannot say that Jesus is just your example for how to live a good life. If you say that this morning, just know you've missed everything Jesus stood for and taught. Jesus had to die for you. The only way for you to be forgiven and restored to your heavenly Father is for the perfect Son of God to take your place. These disciples are evidence that it is possible to be around Jesus and not get Jesus. They had been around him for years and they still didn't get it. The angels don't announce any new information. All they simply say is, you missed the gospel entirely. 
It is possible for you to grow up and be around Christianity, maybe even wear the label, maybe grow up in a Christian home, and your parents tell you to believe a certain thing, and you think, okay, might as well, it seems the best thing for now, and it's possible to be around Christianity, even call yourself a Christian, but if you see Jesus as your example, you've totally missed that you actually need him as your Savior. Some of you might say, I believe the gospel, but the way you live your life shows you don't believe the gospel at all. You're still trying to live as if you can earn your way to heaven, and Jesus and the gospel writers and the whole Bible is saying, Christianity is not about what you can do for God, but about what he has already done for you. That is the core message of Christianity. What kind of king is Jesus? The kind of king that would go into battle and lay down his life to rescue you from sin and death. But if that's all a king does, then he's just like every other king. We need a king that proves he's greater than our greatest enemies. We need a king that can take our death and defeat death. Give me that kind of king, a king who can take our sin and death and then somehow reverse the the curse of sin and death. And death. And that's the meaning of the resurrection. When Jesus was raised from the dead, that was God's way of declaring that his sacrifice for sin was complete and total. In our society, when a criminal goes to jail and completes their sentence, the law has no more claim on that person, right? And he walks out free. That's how the law works. Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sins, and it was a crushing penalty. He was rejected by everyone he knew. He was humiliated. He was crucified. Worse than that, he experienced the rejection of his heavenly Father as he was bearing our sin, bearing our guilt, and bearing our shame. But listen, he satisfied the sentence fully. Because earlier on that Sunday morning, what we were singing about just a few minutes ago, the tomb was rolled away, and Jesus, look, his heart had stopped for three days, and then somehow blood started pumping again, and the synapses started firing again. Look, I'm a biology guy, I love this stuff. And then his eyes opened up, and breath got into his lungs, and he walked out of the tomb. Hey man, I'm alive again. That's who I am. I'm the resurrected king. That's why we celebrate Easter. He did it to show paid in full so that all of those who would accept his gift by faith, they would have the resurrected God living inside of them and declaring to them paid in full. Christian, are you celebrating the meaning of the resurrection today? Is it giving your heart confidence and assurance and joy for those of you who think that you're too flawed like I once thought, like I still struggle to feel. For those of you who think that maybe you're too far gone for Jesus to love you, you've made two mistakes, the baggage of your past is too great, the good news of the resurrection is that you, even you, can be restored and forgiven and set free from the shame of guilt and sin if you'll turn to him now. Understand the meaning of the resurrected king, why he had to do this. And then number three, live by the power of the resurrected king. None of the disciples, not even Peter, walk away understanding the power of this event, this resurrection. They didn't get it, and I can't blame them because I wouldn't either. The power of the resurrection is that it changes how you live and it changes how you die. 
Jesus didn't just rise from the dead to reign in heaven, which he is. He rose from the dead to reign in your heart right now. He is meant to be your king right now. He is meant to be the one who rules your life right now. Remember, he's the only king who can rule over you and not oppress you. He's the only king who can change you without crushing you. Remember, any other king, any other thing you seek to to give your life meaning and significance will ultimately crush you. That's the nature of idols. That's the nature of false kings. You, You say, money is my thing. My career is my thing. My children are my thing. My sexuality is my thing. If you make that your ultimate thing, the only thing it can do is ultimately crush you and destroy you and leave you hopeless. Because nothing can stand being, taking on the weight of, of being your everything. Why is society falling apart? Because we make so many other things our gods and we think this is the secret to meaningful life. And we realize, wait, it's like holding water in our hands. Why can't I grasp it? But when you put your faith in the resurrected Jesus, when you receive him as your king, he begins to transform you from the inside out and he frees you from seeking your identity in anything or anyone else. The resurrected king also gives you the ability to live right now with hope. Look, if you know you will live forever forever with God in a restored body on a new earth, which is what the Bible teaches, if you know that is true, You can face anything here on earth with hope. Why is it so hard to face the sufferings of this life? Whether it's disease or job loss or broken families or wayward kids or aging parents and even death itself. Why is it so hard? The reason it's so hard to face these kinds of sufferings, the sufferings of this broken world, is because we tend to think this broken world is all there is. We tend to think, this is my only chance at love. This is my only chance at doing something meaningful. This is the only body I'll have, the only shot at a career I'll have. But the resurrection of Jesus proves that God cares about the material world and one day he will renew it. Christian, please hear me. One day you will get back everything you lost. One day you will get all the things that you've never had. For Christians, the greatest hope is that the best is yet to come. That this isn't heaven on earth, but heaven on earth is coming. That means you can follow Jesus and obey his word no matter the cost because your sacrifices now cannot compare to what you will experience when he raises you to new life. That's the power of the resurrected king. And finally, the power of the resurrected king impacts not only how you live, not only your hope now, your obedience now, it impacts how you die. Look, as much as we like to think we're invincible, we know it's not true. And look, the younger you are, the more vitality in your body. I I was there once. (laughs) I sometimes think I'm still there, but I know I'm not. But you know, man, I'm going to live forever. Look, I have so much energy. I can do all this one day, and the next day it doesn't even matter to my body. Well, not anymore. (laughs) Come on, body. (laughs) 
My job, my calling, is to remind people regularly that you're going to die. Not to scare you, not to fearmonger, but to wake you up to reality. We live most of our lives in a fog, and it's only in moments like this, or maybe if you're at a funeral, where you actually feel it, where it sinks in for just a moment. Oh my goodness, my life is not forever here. Then what? I don't know if you've been with someone who's dying, but I have many. Death is real to me. I hate death. Death feels, it, it rips families apart. It, it has ripped my own family. And when I lost my dad as a kid, it interrupts our hopes and our plans. Look, without the resurrection, without the hope of resurrection, there is only despair. That's the position of philosopher and, and atheist Bertrand Russell who wrote the book, Why I Am Not a Christian. As he neared his death, in his own words, he said this, quote, The darkness that I have always feared is finally overtaking me. What are you going to hope in when death overtakes you? The resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee for the resurrection of every believer in Jesus. That's the good news today. That's meant to encourage us today. That's our hope. That's why we don't live in despair. Look, I say this almost every Easter that I'm preaching. Did you know that, that honeybees have a stinger? Unlike wasps and other kinds of bees who can sting over and over again, a honeybee can sting once and done. They're one and done. When a honeybee stinger goes into your skin and it pulls away, it rips out part of the guts, and when that happens, the life of the bee will end within minutes. The bee will die. You are stung, but the effects are irreversible. The bee's dead. The resurrection is good news today because Jesus took our death sting. Do you realize that? When he was on the cross, the devil was thinking, ha, ah, I got the Son of God now. All I have to do is ram the, this, this stinger right into his heart and he puts it right into the heart of Jesus and he dies for us. And we're like, no, no, that can't be. But you see, the stinger had to be pulled away. And as soon as death pulled away, the clock is ticking on death. It's the death of Jesus is the death of death itself. Because Jesus rose from the dead and he beat death's blow. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul can boast in the face of death when he says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? That's the power of the resurrected king. That's why we can say, no guilt in life, no fear in death. Since curse has lost its grip on me. Look, Jesus has beaten sin. He's beaten death. He's beaten the enemy. And if you'll receive him, you too can experience the power of the resurrected king. Jesus, one point in his ministry said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then he looked and said, do you believe this? That's the question. Do you believe this? If you don't, you can turn to him now. Turn from yourself. Turn from your sin. Turn from whatever you've been looking to as king and trust in Jesus as your savior. He is the king you've been waiting for. And look, even if you're not a Christian, I close with this. Even if you're not a Christian, you have to admit, deep down, don't you want the story of Jesus to be true? 
Isn't there a part of you that when you hear the, when you watch those movies that have this storyline or you read those great books, isn't there a part of you that it resonates deeply and you're like, oh, if only that were true. And then you see our broken world, you're like, I don't know. Don't you see the reason you want it to be true is because God has put eternity in your hearts. He knows that resonates deep within you, that this hope that one day, one day in the past things were great, there was paradise, it's paradise has been lost, but one day will be the return of the king and it'll make all things new. That is true because of the resurrected king. Christian keeps celebrating our savior, our king. He's worth it. Would you join me in prayer? In just a moment, we're going to sing a final song, but I do want to ask you to reflect for, for just a few minutes. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life, and the question is, do you believe this? If you do, you can face anything, even the worst that this world could bring. And his promise is, I am with you always. His promise is, everything lost will be restored. Cry out to him today, he is near to the brokenhearted. If there's a sin, if there's a a struggle in your life that has been plaguing you and you want to break free, you're you're desperate. He, He works in the most desperate situations. Come to him with your desperation. He can accept it. He responds to it. And I know there are people of all ages, children, students, adults, who you've heard this a number of times, but you don't believe it. You have more questions than anything. But today there's something something drawing you to God and you don't know quite what it is and, and I don't even know what it is, but I do know that it's God working in you to show you that he is real that this gospel of Jesus Christ is good news and that it's for you. And I pray that in this moment, right now, you would cry out to God for salvation, for for the gift of his life in you so that you can know that the resurrected king is not just the resurrected king, but your resurrected king. Father, I pray that in these moments you would bring the change, the fruit, the transformation that we all need. No one is is exempt from needing grace today. And I thank you that no one is so far gone that they're beyond your ability to give grace. Whether we think we're too good or too bad, I pray we would each come broken before you and, and see You are beautiful and strong. You are the one we have been waiting for. And we wait with assurance that the resurrection guarantees our future resurrection with you. We love you. We worship you today. And we say this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and celebrate together. Thank you.
Let's all sing. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our souls to Him belong? Who holds our days within His hand? What comes apart from His command? What will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Oh, sing hallelujah, our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing God is good, God is good, there is His grace and goodness known, in our great Redeemer's love, who holds our faith when fears arise, who stands above the stormy trial, who sends the waves that bring us nigh. Unto the shore of the rock of Christ, oh, sing hallelujah, our hope springs eternal, oh, sing hallelujah, now and ever we confess, Christ our hope and life and
Amen. Is that your personal confession this morning? Christ, our hope in life and death. I pray that it is yours. Is, is Sam and Helen, are Sam and Helen Yego here this morning? Helen, come on down, dear. Where's Sam? Sam, come on down. Folks, this is, Sam and Helen are headed to Florida. Everybody say, aw. Aw. And this is Sam's last Sunday with us. Sam has served as a deacon here for 10 plus years. He's been on our Christian Schools Committee. Uh, he's taught Sunday school for us. Helen has been an employee here at the school. She'll be, she'll be finishing out the school year uh, with us, um, thankfully. And, and these guys, what you don't know is these guys have behind the scenes, without people knowing it, they have ministered privately to countless families and, and college students. They've opened up their home to Bowie State students over the years. And guys, we are, we are going to miss you. We are sad. Sam, we're sad to see you go. And Helen, we'll hang on to you for a couple more months. <laughs> but what we want to do, I'm gonna, I'll pray our benediction, and then if you guys want to come up and just greet them, say, say goodbye to Sam, give them a hug, and, and wish them Godspeed and God's blessing as they start a new journey into retired life in Florida. Praise God. All right? <clears throat> Church, hear, hear these words from 1 Corinthians as our benediction. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>